Let's take off, baby. Let's just drive, honey, into the night sky, to the sunset shine, into the day, baby. This is Travel Michigan. I'm Dave Lorenz, along with Nick Nurbin from Pure Michigan. As the clouds clear and the cold weather takes hold at the Headlands International Dark Sky Park, a magical extravaganza awaits you at the tip of the mitt. There's a new hotel in Detroit that features duck pin bowling and so much more. It's the incredible Cambria Hotel, and it's a one of a kind. Whether you're there for late fall hiking, winter camping, or to traverse by lantern-lit snowshoe, Tequamanan Falls State Park is truly spectacular at the quieter times. And a visit to the Zeckelman Holocaust Center in Farmington Hills is a moving experience that provides perspective. We travel Michigan next, where your trip begins at michigan.org. Let's go traveling. Welcome to Travel Michigan. I'm Dave Lorenz, along with Nick Nurbin from Pure Michigan, and we sure are happy that you're back with us again this week as we explore the beautiful state of Pure Michigan. You know, we have so much to offer any time of the year. It really is a a beautiful place, and we have so many cool things that there uh, are to do that you really need to get out there. And we're going to just bring you around a couple of our favorite places in today's program. We hope you can stick around for the entire show. Nick, where are we going to go to first? Well, Dave, we're going to head up to the Straits of Mackinac, just west of Mackinac City, to the Headlands International Dark Sky Park to talk to Jamie Westfall, Emmett County Park Manager at the Headlands International Dark, Dark Sky Park. And Jamie... When we talk about dark skies, just for our listeners, let's let's explain what is it about dark skies and what can we see in those dark skies? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so dark skies are uh, obviously a, a sky with um, a minimal amount of light pollution that makes it um, uh, desirable for dark sky viewing, like uh, looking at the constellations, looking at the Milky Way, looking at the Aurora Borealis. Uh, just um, being able to view thing, distant objects in the night sky with, without uh, light pollution inhibiting that. Well, and, and you know, without, um, you know, uh, maybe man-made light here and there, that's part of it. It also helps mm-hmm. to have a, kind of a clear sight uh, all the way to the horizon, right? So if you're in an area that's dark, but you have tall trees all around you really close, that that makes it a little bit difficult as well, doesn't it? Right, and that that that's what is one great thing about dark sky viewing in Michigan is the shoreline access that we have uh, all around us. Yeah, and uh, here at the Headlands, we're no exception. We have uh, we have over two miles of shoreline here, and uh, we also have neighboring parks that I also manage and oversee that are on the shoreline as well. So several miles of shoreline. And uh, public land going going uh, further west, we just west of our parks, we have wilderness state parks. So so this region, this is actually designated as a dark sky coast in Michigan, and it it's just fantastic viewing all around. Nick, have you been to the uh, Headlands International Dark Sky Park yet? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I I have enjoyed during the day and at night 
a visit to the Headlands International Dark Sky Park. I spend a lot of time at Wilderness State Park. Try to get up there at least once a year. It's one of Michigan's largest state parks. And, and Jamie, we get a lot of questions about the northern lights, the aurora borealis. How can I see them? Where's the best place? What's the best time of year? All those different things. And I know it is not something that is set by schedule by any means. How do you explain to your visitors when they ask, how can I see the northern lights? Huh? Well, um, we, we get asked that question all the time. And my best answer is, don't come here. <laughs> and uh, that surprises people. And we, we certainly don't want to turn anybody away. It's a great place for, uh, we, we see the aurora here at the headlands, but we don't have that north-facing vantage point from our dark sky viewing area. We do Our shoreline that you talked about that looks out over the horizon with no barriers is not facing north. So when you view the aurora here at the headlands, you're looking, you have to look up over the tree line and you'll still see them and you'll get a the oohs and ahs. But if you really want to see them, you need to find yourself a north facing, uh, preferably a stretch of shoreline or a big open field somewhere where you, you can look north and and that's not always true either. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking general generalities, but sometimes you can, depending on the aurora show, you can see it in places you don't expect it you know sometimes you can see them just basically yeah. anywhere it just it does yeah. depend doesn't it yes it depends on the the power of the geomagnetic storm mm-hmm. and, and other factors sure a lot to go into but if you were in our neck of the woods i would send you to i mean i say do your own research and find your own quiet place not to just overwhelm any one area but our our park McAlpin point has a pretty good vantage point which is um, just a mile or less down the road. And we have a brand new parking lot down there, actually. And a lot of people go down there to view the Northern Lights if they want to get the Mackinac Bridge in the picture, too. That's kind of a cool, cool yeah, photo to have. Uh, but then also Wilderness State Park, like you said, that's a great place, a great dark sky viewing area, and uh, you get get a better angle for the Northern Lights from there. Yeah, and I was going to mention that also. The, the the beach right there at Wilderness State Park faces due north, due north and that's yeah. a wonderful place for viewing as well. Uh, on michigan.org slash dark sky, we have a video that you helped contribute to about dark sky opportunities in Michigan. And I think everybody also wants to know what time of year. So are there times a year when the night sky is more visible and easier to see some of the constellations that you recommend people's target if they are looking specifically for a dark sky experience? Yeah, I, I, um, we have astronomers that, that work here or uh, volunteer here in our park, and they tell me, you know, the winter time is the best time to view the stars because, because um, the skies are even clearer in the winter, and um, that's great. But it's so cold. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like, I am partial to summer for viewing the night sky because I like to be warm when I look at the stars. It's going to be chillier up there than it is uh, a lot of other places. And, of course, at Headlands International Dark Sky Park, you have to remember you're by the water. It's going to be, what, 10, 15 degrees cooler than it is, you know, inland. So just be prepared for that. Dress for it. Head out there on those clear nights. You're going to have a, a great deal of fun. Uh, bring your glasses. And a lot of times they have special events where they're out there and they're going to help you. You can find out all about it by going to the website, midarkskypark.org. I want to thank Jamie Westfall for, for being with us today. 
We're going to find out about Detroit duck pin bowling next here on Travel Michigan, where your trip begins at michigan.org. Travel Michigan. I'm Dave Lorenz from Pure Michigan. And Nick, you know, I I get opportunities to see various attractions or buildings or Mm -hmm. whatever uh, as I visit places. And I was recently in downtown Detroit and I was uh, given a tour of the Cambria Hotel. Now, I see hotels all the time, Mm -hmm. but uh, Claude Molinari from Visit Detroit said, you have to see this, this hotel, this Cambria Hotel, because it's different. And I can't wait for you to hear about this Cambria Hotel because it's very cool. It really is. Yeah, we're going to talk with Ryan Miller next to learn more about the hotel, as well as Detroit Duck Pin, which is the newest entertainment experience there at the Cambria Hotel in downtown Detroit. And Ryan, before we get into the details on that, I just am curious. What differentiates duck pin bowling from the bowling that you and I and our neighbors go to at the the neighborhood bowling alley? Yeah, so duck pin bowling is a lot like miniature bowling. There's not much difference in the game itself. There's some style of duck pin that you may do three balls a frame instead of two. Um, But our style is just two balls like traditional bowling. Um, But they're extremely small balls and then smaller, like more separated pins on strings. Um, you don't have to set up the pins yourself. After you throw, the strings will reset and set it just like bowling naturally. Um, but it's much harder because of the smaller, more distance between the pins and the smaller ball, but a lot more fun, I think, as well. You don't have to worry about bowling shoes, <laughs> finding a bowling ball that fits in your fingers, uh, no oil on the lanes that gets all over your clothes. It's just coming out and having a good time. Well, in, in duck pin bowling... Isn't this something that they used to do like way back, you know, like in the 20s or something? It seems like it was, if the way you're describing it, if I remember right, this is something that used to be done a long time ago. Yeah, I always looked at it as something that they did like outside where, you know, when I go camping, there's sometimes the smaller lanes out on the grass that you kind of roll a rubber ball and they have the plastic pins that you can set up. So kind of similar to that, but it's taken to a whole other level with the technology that we have now. Well, it sounds like a lot of fun. You know, as I said, um, going into the segment, the, I, I walked through um, the uh, the venue, and I was just so impressed with all the fun things that there were to do at the Cambria Hotel. And I do want to, you know, learn more about all those fun things to do there. But let's go through the, the actual hotel a little bit first, because okay. you're located there at 600 West Lafayette, downtown Detroit. Tell us about the actual hotel before we go downstairs to check out the fun things downstairs. Yeah, so the hotel's a gorgeous new property. Um, you know, I don't want to say upscale to scare people away, but very beautiful that's for anybody to come to. There's banquet spaces. Um, we have Detroit Taco right inside the hotel. They just opened up a new Mediterranean restaurant called Chibo that's gorgeous on the inside. Um, this is their first weekend rolling with that restaurant. We have rooftop bars, meeting and banquet spaces, and then just beautiful rooms. Very nice space to come out and enjoy any type of evening you're looking to have. 
Well, that sounds wonderful. Now, when we talk about some of the entertainment and the, the duck pin bowling and other offerings there, it sounds like you have eight lanes of duck pin bowling. So that's a pretty good sized facility and, and lots of folks can enjoy this activity there. And what else can I find down there aside from the duck pin bowling? Yeah, so for duck pin bowling, again, we do have the eight lanes, which is fantastic. One of the biggest spaces in Michigan for duck pin bowling. Uh, it's the first one to actually come down to downtown Detroit, so something different for the city to experience. But then we also have 13 golf simulators. Um, whether wow. you've picked up a golf club your entire life or you've never swung a club, there's something for you to do in those simulators, whether it's playing around a golf at Pebble Beach whether it's just playing games that are similar to Candy Crush or Target Practice, anybody can come out and have a great time. Yeah, when I was there, uh, it was like at lunchtime. So I could tell there were a bunch of people just saying, hey, let's just run over there, play a quick little game, uh, and then, you know, scoop back to the office. So it looked like it it was fun. Nobody was there really in, you know, golf shoes or anything. They were just having a good time, just taking a couple of, couple of swings. So you can do that. What else was there? Uh, because you had some other fun things there, too. Yeah, so we have pool table, ping pong, shuffleboard, putting greens. Um, we do have multiple full-service bars that, you know, you can order food, you can order drinks. So there's a little something for everyone. When you talk about Pebble Beach, first of all, I'm not sure my game's quite ready for Pebble Beach. That's a challenging golf course. I assume there are a number of courses available to play in those golf simulators? Yep. So we work with uh, Trackman Golf Simulators, which is what a lot of the tour pros use to kind of fine-tune their games. But it also comes with uh, over 200 actual golf locations built into it to uh, sit alongside the trainings portion of it. So you could do searches by specific state, country, and pick out individual courses that you may want to play within those states, whether it's as easy as something along the lines of St. Andrews that's wide open to play or going as difficult as something along the Pebble Beach line. Well, Ryan, you are located in a hotel, so I, I suppose we should make it clear you don't have to be staying at that hotel to enjoy everything you have to offer there. Not at all. You can come out to and do duck pin bowling. You can come out and do golf. You can do them together one night and enjoy a nice drink and meal afterwards. Uh, so a little bit of something, you know, maybe you want to come out before a Red Wings or Lions game or after. Um, we should have a great crowd there for Monday night football. People just coming in, having a good time at the bar and playing some golf. Well, and that's what I was thinking, too, when it comes to the, the clientele. It can be anyone from who so was working downtown, people who want to get together for a happy hour after work, but also visitors to downtown Detroit can come and enjoy the atmosphere and, and activities there. And just really you know, talk a little bit about what this means for another offering in another place in downtown Detroit in the continued growth in activities and tourism opportunities in downtown. You know, it's great for the city. I grew up in Michigan. I, you know, I went to college out in California, but came back home and wanted to be a part of the city and the growth of the city. Um, but, you know, alongside the entertainment district where all the arenas are, the development of the city and just being a part of that and being with Cambria and being in a new section of the city and giving people another alternative to want to come out to the city. It's fantastic. You know, I say all the time, a lot of people aren't wanting to go to Detroit just to go to Detroit. And we got to give them reasons to start coming down to the city like other places do. And this is going to definitely help with that. We're talking to Ryan Miller, general manager of Detroit Duck Pin and Five Iron Golf at the uh, beautiful Cambria Hotel on West Lafayette in downtown Detroit. And, you know, as, you, as you're talking about kind of the cool factor of all these cool things there are to uh, see and do in Detroit, I was thinking about, you know, 
you know, it is true that, you know, you think about Detroit, and it wasn't too long ago that, that none of this type of thing mm-hmm. was available. And here today, Detroit has become so cool because of things like this. And even if you don't go downstairs and enjoy these things, when you go to the Cambria, you just feel the coolness of that. Uh, Ryan called it kind of an upscale hotel. It really is. When you walk in there, you look at the decor. You can tell it's in a former uh, radio station uh, studio and transmitter site because they have all the decor is like old-timey radio decor and uh, like microphones up and other things. It's really neat, even to the point where if you go downstairs in one level, you can see the facing of the old equipment. Uh, and, and of course, us being you know radio people, it's just really neat to see that. And I think everybody else would be able to see that. Walk through the hotel, get an idea. And because there were so many neat things to see and do in Detroit, it's just a real great option to enjoy staying at the Cambria Hotel and then doing all those fun things that uh, Ryan has been talking about. Now, here's the uh, website to enjoy some of these things. And to be clear, you don't have to uh, be part of like a league or anything, although you can consider this. You can just kind of drop in or go to the website to find out how you can have a group come so they can be prepared to uh, host you. Uh, Two websites to offer you. DetroitDuckPin.com is the first website. DetroitDuckPin.com. And then there is 5ironGolf.com as well. I have to tell you, watching those guys swing those clubs for those uh, virtual uh, golf uh, uh, situations, that was just that... That's just incredible. 5ironGolf.com is the website uh, for that as well. So, Ryan Miller, thank you so much. General manager of both uh, Detroit Duck Pen and 5 Iron Golf at the Cambria Hotel. You need to get there. Check it out uh, one of these days very soon. We're going to head way up to the Upper Peninsula to the Tequamanan Falls State Park next here on Travel Michigan, where your trip begins at Michigan.org. Travel Michigan. I'm Dave Lorenz from Pure Michigan with Nick Nurbin, also from Pure Michigan. And if there's one thing Nick and I agree with, well, there are a lot of things we agree with, but if there's one (laughs) thing we really agree with is that the purest of Pure Michigan is in the Upper Peninsula. Let's tick off people in the Lower Peninsula. It's just fun. Uh, but, But, you know, really, you'll think about it. The Upper Peninsula is just, it's just beautiful. It truly is. You know, a nature paradise. It is a special place. Anybody who's ever been to the Upper Peninsula says it because it's true. And there are certain places that are so special, you need to go there at any time of the year. Well, that's the thing. The Upper Peninsula is home to a number of larger Michigan state parks. And Tequamanon Falls State Park is over is nearly 50,000 acres. So if you think of the scale of 50,000 acres, that is a large tract of untouched Michigan wilderness mm-hmm. in the Upper Peninsula. Very beautiful to explore through the trails and all kinds of different resources there. And let's head up to the state park at Tequamanon Falls to talk to Kevin Dennis, park manager. And before we get into some of the details and opportunities there at the state park, Kevin, I wanted to ask you, Tequamanon Falls is not the easiest name to pronounce for some <laughs> folks. Yeah. What is the most unique pronunciation of Tequamanon <laughs> Falls you've heard recently? Oh, boy. Uh, um, <laughs> I've heard several. 
Um, it, it's usually sort of a blurred um, version of it that adds an extra um, <laughs> it adds an extra en or on in there and becomes like a six syllable name. Yeah. And, uh, but as soon as I tell them that it rhymes with phenomenon, oh, there you phenomenon go. Phenomenon rhymes with phenomenon. That gets people on the right track. Oh wow! And it is a phenomenon, uh, a phenomenal place. Uh, <laughs> I, no, I'm not a problem saying that. Uh, it truly is. Uh, describe Tequamanan Falls State Park for us. Sure. So we're, uh, as you mentioned, it's almost a fifty thousand acre state park that's got a, a, a quite a combination of. Uh, modern developed areas with the waterfalls and campgrounds and and day use areas and then we also have an extensive hiking trail system here that's got about 35 miles of hiking trails and some of which some of that that uh, occurs in our natural area uh, that's a, a huge part of the park is just undeveloped um, area probably close to half the acreage is that so uh, there's a lot to do here very large park um, and the four seasons bring lots of opportunities. Well, yeah, you mentioned the four seasons, and that is a unique aspect of Tequamanon Falls State Park, is that there are wonderful things to do in all seasons of the year. And as we look into the winter season, what types of opportunities do you recommend folks can take part in, and what makes it different to visit that time of year? Sure. So I, I think the biggest difference, and just start with the basic, and that's the waterfalls, in particular the upper falls, as we transition into the winter season and the weather gets colder and snowier, uh, we get ice formations on the side of the waterfalls at first. And then as the winter goes on, that ice will start to creep over the river. And it's really spectacular. The blue and the green um, shades of ice are when folks visit in the winter, they're always amazed by, by that in particular. So, um, you know, that's, that's one thing that, you kind of see in the winter um, there's still hiking opportunities in the winter or more snowshoeing actually you know we've got uh, several miles of snowshoe trail and cross-country trail ski trail uh, that we maintain in the winter um, it, it's definitely a, a, a different look a different feel and uh, with 180 inches of snow on average this this wow. place will definitely look a lot different quite soon here. Well, of course, you have um, a lot of amenities that you offer in the warm weather months. Um, you have the, the great restaurant there and such. What's offered in the, uh, the quieter, uh, colder times of the year, uh, just so people can be prepared? Sure. So the restaurant at the Upper Falls, which it is a private entity, they do open back up in the winter. So that mm-hmm. opportunity is there in the winter season as well. Uh, park staff, maintains the restroom facilities at the upper falls uh, the path to view the falls um, so so we spend a lot of time in in sort of keeping the upper falls unit very similar to summer as far as that goes um, we actually do have some camping opportunities here in the winter which uh, surprise folks sometimes but um, we keep one loop open at the lower falls for winter camping um, there's no shower or flush toilet facilities in the winter but the electricity's on uh there are spigots uh, or a spigot where you can get water to fill jugs we plow the campsites out and such so that's another little hidden gem if uh, anyone is interested in trying something different or uh, winter camping is another another quiet uh, activity here in the winter time 
Well, and you mentioned Upper and Lower Falls. There are two distinct areas there at Tuquamanum Falls State Park in terms of parking and access and trails. And I wanted to just focus on Lower Falls for just a minute because recently the state park added a bridge over to an island there that overlooks Lower Falls. And that has really opened up access to visitors of all abilities. And can you talk a little bit about what that has done for the state park to increase access for people with physical challenges? Yeah, that project was was a really great project, uh, and, and we hoped that it would um, give the benefits, as you just mentioned, making it universally accessible to get over to the island that the Lower Falls cascade around. And it's, I think it's even exceeded our expectations. I mean, mm. you see folks of all abilities um, every time you go over there, and we hear comments every day, really, about you know, from folks that either had never been over there before or hadn't in, in a long time for whatever, you know, mobility reasons they might have. Uh, so it's been, it's really been fantastic. And, and that bridge is, is available in the wintertime also. Great. It's a little bit of a further walk in the winter. Um, you have to, we maintain a parking area up on top of the hill. So it's about a one mile walk from there to the lower falls in the winter. And then of course the bridge is a little further yet, um, but very, do, uh, very doable and uh, beautiful in the wintertime for sure. We're talking to uh, Kevin Dennis, park manager of Tequamadan Falls State Park. And Kevin, I know during the warm weather months, you offer um, several either classes or guided trips. Do you do any um, guided um, like snowshoe trips or anything like that in the, the winter months? We do. Uh, in the month of February, every Saturday in the month of February, so it would be four Saturdays, uh, we offer a guided snowshoe hike um, in the afternoon. We'll have a bonfire, and this all takes place at the Upper Falls, a guided snowshoe hikes, a bonfire, and then we, we do a lantern-lit skiing and snowshoe loop um, for those four Saturdays in February. So, yeah, those are very well attended. Make a nice, you know, evening out or a weekend to come up to the UP and and, and partake in that. The brew pub is open always in the winter time up there. So, uh, yeah, that makes for a, for a real nice opportunity there. Well, that sounds like a really unique experience and a great way to see the tremendous natural setting up there in the eastern Upper Peninsula. And when I think of the UP, I often think of wildlife because there's so much wildlife that you can see, especially in a 50,000-acre state park. And on one of these snowshoe outings or generally just exploring Tequamanon Falls, what types of wildlife can I expect to see? Um, you can expect to see, uh, of course, we've got deer. We've got a lot of black bear in this park. Now, in the wintertime, of course, you're not going to encounter those mm -hmm. as much. Um, there are moose around. Um, we've actually seen some tracks, no actual sightings. Uh, in the in the fall months, but they are around. When you get around the river, you're likely to see otter, beaver, uh, muskrat, uh, mink. There's a lot of that kind of river uh, wildlife that's that's around. And actually, in the winter, you see them a lot of times more. Uh, they'll be up on the ice at the upper falls, and you'll see the otters go, you know, dive in and swim and go fishing and pop back out. And uh, yeah, uh, quite a variety. And also, I should add, we've got a couple unique creatures that live in the, in the northern part of the UP. 
Um, Martin and Fisher are both, um, I believe they're in the, the weasel family, larger sort of carnivore type animals that, uh, that live here. And those are, those are a couple other things that are seen fairly regularly by our visitors as they traverse the park. It's a spectacular place, and I have to tell you, I think Tequamanan Falls, the actual falls, mm-hmm. I think it's more beautiful in the wintertime than the summertime. There's something about not only the way the, the ice and the snow accumulate from the sides, but, you know, you get that steam or whatever it is. You know, it's basically steam, the way it, it just kind of fumes up, you know, from the, the stir of the water and the temperatures and everything. It's, Wow. It's just spectacular. It is phenomenal. <laughs> Tequamanan yes, it is. is really wonderful. It really is a great place. Tequamanan Falls State Park is up there, kind of between Paradise and Newberry, kind of in the northeastern part of the Upper Peninsula, not too far away from Sault Ste. Marie. You could uh, check out that entire area, uh, you know, late fall into the winter. I know you'll enjoy it. So check it out. The website is michigan.gov forward slash DNR. And our thanks to Kevin Dennis for being with us today. We're going to check out the Holocaust Center in Farmington Hills next, here on Travel Michigan, where your trip begins at michigan.org. Travel Michigan. I'm Dave Lorenz, along with Nick Nurbin from Pure Michigan. You know, so often, most of the time, we talk about, um, you know, obviously, you know, these these great, wonderful, fun places to go to in Michigan and fun things to do. Occasionally, uh, like so many of our wonderful museums, we're talking about places where you can learn. Mm-hmm. And there's always such a positive thing about this. There's still a very positive thing about the next place we're going to go to. But it's certainly not about a positive experience. Explain that to us. That's correct, Dave. I think travel can often be a great opportunity for education, whether it's history, other cultures, all kinds of different opportunities to learn. And as we go to Farmington Hills to talk to Rabbi Ellie Mayerfeld of the Zeckelman Holocaust Center, education is probably a big part of what you do, Ellie. Is that true? Yeah, most certainly. Hi, both of you. It's it's good to talk to you. Certainly, um, education is really core to, to what we're trying to accomplish here. Yeah. Uh, you, you can go, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, things that you can do, like you said before, that are fun. Um, when you come here, I don't want you to leave depressed, but I do want you to come out feeling empowered to make a difference in the world. Well, and I can tell you from uh, the times that I've visited the Holocaust Center, you will leave feeling impacted we are actually towards the tail end of a renovation of our core exhibit. And so uh, starting in January, people are going to be able to come and see a, a real, a brand new core exhibit here. Um, we've been in the building now for 20 years. We were 20 years in West Bloomfield and then moved here to Orchard Lake and 12 Mile in Farmington Hills. And uh, we've been here 20 years. So it was time for an update to the core exhibit. The core message obviously doesn't change, but... We want to make sure that we're incorporating, you know, the, the best way to help tell the story for people to be able to interact with it and all those kinds of things. Ellie, how did the um, the Holocaust Center come about in Farmington Hills? So it was you know, way back in the 80s, um, a group of Holocaust survivors who had, you know, was sort of playing poker together and those just as a social thing 
um, decided they wanted to make a difference. And they talked and they decided they needed to open a museum. At the time, there were no standalone Holocaust museums in America. And they decided it was something that needed to happen here. And it was really just through force of will that they, they first opened the, the Holocaust Center here in Michigan. That's, that's how it really started in, in 84. You know, I, I have to say, uh, the first time I visited there, I didn't know what to expect because it is such a, you know, horrific uh, subject. But then look at what we're going through now. Uh, it's it's yeah. truly hard to believe that we'd be discussing what happened then in a contemporary setting. Uh, there still seems to be such a lack of understanding of what happened before. I, I'm so concerned about education and, and what you do there at the Zeckelman Holocaust Center, I think is so important. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit about uh, the things that people learn when they visit? Sure. I, I think you're right. Um, thank you for saying what you said, because, you know, one of the things we do not say here at the museum is never again, because unfortunately it does happen again and again and again. And um, as uh, as a, a country here in America, there are cases where we stood by as it happened in other countries. And so it's important for citizens here to understand what are the root causes, what are the, the trends that happen in the society, and how do you cut them off? How do you make a difference in the conversations you're having with people around you that can move a conversation in a direction towards peace instead of towards terrible activities? And so that's really something that we push. We want to people to respect and stand up for the rights of others. We want people to learn that their words matter and that words lead to action. These are the messages that people have to leave here understanding that it's not, and we, we have a blessing here because we have over 800 survivors who left us their stories. Most of them are gone today, but they recorded their, their testimonies and were able to use those to help people learn. And I know when visitors come to the Holocaust Center, there are different exhibits there that help them visualize and learn more in detail about what they should take away to make sure they understand the history. Can you give us a little more right. detail about some of those exhibits that they see? Sure. So in the new, in the new exhibit that's going to be opening, um, the first uh, thing that they're going to really spend some time on is understanding what life was like in pre-war Europe for the Jewish communities that were there. But they're going to study it from a perspective of the individuals who were living those lives. So it isn't like a history lesson. It's interactive. You're talking, you're, you're learning from someone who says, you know, I remember going out and selling eggs with my dad. We had a chicken farm. And I remember, you know, going to Sunday school and not liking it very much. Or, you know, these kinds of very personal stories that help the visitor, you know, connect to something which is far away and should make it familiar. So these people who they're going to be interacting with, these stories from the survivors, aren't exactly like them, and that's okay. But there are things that they share in common, and that should feel uh, comfortable for the people so that they have a way in, so that there's a way for them to hear this story and feel connected to it. Um, and then as the exhibit continues, um, they start to learn about the rise of Nazism and um, the power that uh, Germany started to exercise within its own borders, and then as it extends, um, with the invasion of Poland in 1939, we're not focused on the dates as much as on understanding the, the stages in history. What, what happened? How did the Jews react to the situation they found themselves in? What were their responses? How, what were their limits to the choices they could make? And so we, we, we take that really through the entire story, hearing from individual survivors, hearing their testimonies, understanding the circumstances they were living in, um, and then through some of the horrible things that happened, 1941, the 
Nazis invade um, Soviet Union and start murdering Jews in their own backyards. Um, and this does start to sound familiar to those of us who've been watching the news the last few weeks. Um, people uh, being identified as Jewish and being rounded up and shot. Uh, and um, the collaboration of the neighbors who help identify them. Um, very, very few survivors in these communities. The, we have a, a community that um, lots of, of their neighbors and uh, Jewish neighbors moved here in the 1880s. And so we have lots of photos and stories of these families. 1941, there were 1,500 Jews living in this town. Less than 100 survived. And so we want to hear from those survivors. We want to hear their stories and understand the experience and figure out how these things happen so that we can try and make the world different today. Ellie, speaking of those survivors, I remember 20 years ago when I first visited, I learned that, yeah. that you have a survivor talk uh, Sundays, I yes. think is what you called them. Yeah. And, and even then I thought, there are survivors from Holocaust at this yeah, time because to me, well, it just seemed like it was so long ago. It's, <laughs> it seemed like right. it should have been so long ago because how could it be so recent? And now yeah. you still have Survivor Talk That's Sundays. That's how recently this was. Right. It's still in our lifetimes. There are still survivors. There's still a handful of them that are able to speak for us well enough to speak. Um, and so on Sundays, there's a there's a public lecture, and and you can ask some questions and talk to them. And um, to your last, you know, the last few years that you can have that opportunity. So you know, we encourage everybody to come and hear from them. I want to leave our conversation on as much of an up note as we can. Okay, uh, Ellie. So I do want to find out about the re renovation. Um, uh, give us a little more information about um, about the renovation and and what we're what you're planning for the future. So, so the renovation really is focused, like I've been talking about, about hearing from the individual survivors. Um, also, just you know, using the the best practices that we've learned work best in a, in a museum setting, a, a spirit of inquiry, so that we're not trying to teach you a series of dates or facts, but really asking questions that don't have easy yes or no answers, so that people really can dig in and think about these things. And um, using technology in the exhibits, all all of these ways of really engaging with the people who come, and that's that's really literally our mission is to engage, educate, and empower by remembering the Holocaust. And the empowering is important. When we the last exhibit when you before you leave is talking about modern genocide, modern anti-Semitism, what you can do. People should feel when they leave that they should feel empowered to make choices that can build a good today and a better tomorrow. That's what they should leave here feeling. And it's, it, should, it should leave them with, with a feeling that they can make a difference. Amen to that. The website is holocaustcenter.org. Our thanks to Ellie Mayerfield. And that's all the time we have for Travel Michigan for this week. We'll talk to you next week on Travel Michigan, where your trip begins at michigan.org. Let's go traveling. Let's go traveling. Let's go traveling.